Hey, everybody. Howdy. <laughs> it's Alan. And Brent. And we're here for episode... Number 56. 56. That's uh, way older than either of us. Yes. Counting, counting down to episode 100. Only 44 to go. Almost there. Wish it hit... I. It only took us three years to get here. Oh, happy three-year anniversary. It, it, happy three-year anniversary, Brent. Uh, hug, hug, kiss, kiss. Uh. So you haven't made a comment yet, but and listeners, you can't see this because the video stream is not working today as far as I know. No, but it's offline. I, I'm wearing a, wearing a Unity sweatshirt. Oh, look at you. And you're in all like fancy pants. Uh, What's I, up with that? I, I, they're not really fancy pants. You just joined the company. Are they're, you interviewing already? They're not. They're, they're just, <laughs> I am not wearing jeans. I'm wearing a pair of blue pants, though. They're really soft. I'd have you feel them, but then we might not finish then the, the episode. Then the podcast would be over, <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah. We'd have to change our rating. <laughs> it would get all weird and stuff. There's a story behind this particular sweatshirt. One cool thing. We're going to need a... Um, you know when we drink when we say we've said this, said this before? Yes. When Alan talks about how cool it is to work at Unity, we'll have to do something else. I'm not sure what it is. But one of the things that's kind of fun about Unity is each of their offices around the world, they have unique swag for that office. Oh. And people in the Seattle office look at my kind of purple Unity sweatshirt. They go, oh, my God, I want that sweatshirt. You can only get this sweatshirt from the Helsinki office. I have a gray Unity hoodie for from the Seattle office, and I, I eventually I hope to collect a rainbow. So, so the sweatshirt model at Unity it gives not, managers the ability to lord no, no. over their their travel budget. Not just all. Not, you're, <laughs> you're, you're being stupid. So it's not just swag. It's about it's about identity. So it's not just about uh, it's about swag. It's not just about sweatshirts. I also got a Unity beanie, only available there. Black one. They have socks there, too. They didn't have any left. Anyway, it's kind of cool. I, I haven't really been in the swag rooms as much, but they have different swag at different locations, different colors, and just kind of a fun way to – you can kind of spot where someone's from. Oh, it's like there's like a, a conference. You go, oh, you're from Unite. Um, it's Copenhagen, uh, Unity. Which, uh, which location has the coolest color? I don't know yet. What, what color is Seattle? Gray? Gray. Of course match, it is. They match the sky. Right. Uh, Copenhagen? I wasn't in Copenhagen long enough to inspect their swag. I was in the office for a half a day, and then the next day I was there at a full day off-site. So how does uh, the swag thing work? You just show up and you're like, hey, I'm here uh, for my swag, I'm a visitor? No. I had to do a little finagling and sweet-talking. Mm. So it isn't like you show up. It isn't like a scavenger hunt where you, I'm here, give me my box of stuff. Is it more like so? I don't like at the Olympics. Like the the <laughs> the athletes, they trade something. I'm trying to remember what it is. Well, at the end of a soccer match, often players will trade their jerseys. Right, that's right. If it's all <laughs> over, yeah. In fact, I've I did that. I walked into the office and I pointed at someone, took my shirt off, and offered it to him, expecting me to give me theirs, but they just kind of freaked out and walked away. Um. Yeah, that might be a little understandable. <laughs> Good. <sighs> okay. So, so what do we have for our three listeners today? <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for the three today, uh, we've already mentioned this episode 56. <laughs> we wanted to elaborate a little bit on 
the comments we discussed before around the role of quality and uh, how those have played out, at least in my work over the last uh, couple weeks. Okay. Month. It's been a, probably a month since we recorded last. Uh, I have been channeling Brent a lot recently in that I've been saying, I've been stealing his line on uh, the role of test org, quality org, whatever you want to call it, is to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. Yep. And the reason I nailed that right is because I actually, I've really channeled Brent a lot and used that line because I think it encompasses a lot of what I want a quality team to do. So thank you, Brent. Yeah, you're welcome. So. I was particularly proud when I finally connected those dots. So what happened was I was at an offsite and I won't go into all the details, but um, one of our uh, engineering leaders came up with the point. Uh, he said that perhaps he wasn't even like saying this is an absolute. Says perhaps we should consider that all development work should create value, or right? Is that, is that what I said in the thing? Yeah, that is what you all, said. In the all thing. dev work should create value, and then Brett, Brent. Brett's our engineering leader. Brett, Brent, are you referring to me or someone else? I'm referring to you. Okay. <laughs> you had a reaction to that around ROI. Can you recap that? The, actually, my reaction around ROI was um, was to a comment of what test role, because right, that comment is around what dev's work should be. Um, and so my comment was, what tests should be doing in this, mm -hmm. right? Because that, if all dev work, I, I can actually connect this, these two. Th I thought you had, maybe I just did it in my head. I didn't, so it was a different thread, but I can connect it here, right? If all dev work is to create value, uh, one might be able to use that as an argument for, for example, unit tests moving to, te uh, to a test org, right? Unit tests don't create value, only Product code. I would value. argue they do. They create the value that of they. Of course, they you would argue <laughs> that. But what we're trying to do is talk about like I've had the argument um, with Dev on multiple occasions. Like it, it's all along with the theme of, well, if we Dev are picking up unit tests, what does the test team do? I've heard that before. <laughs> it's been a long, long time, but I've heard that exact same line. Right. A long so time I, ago. I would certainly, and I don't think this is the point that we want to get into, but certainly I want to be careful with, with absolutist statements like all dev work should create value because, or create customer value because it's pretty clear. It doesn't take much sort of uh, psychological analysis to come to the conclusion that that means dev should only be working on product code. Because that's what creates customer value. You could definitely spin it that way. And uh, any developer who is on uh, marching on the, the side of all I want to do is write code, uh, that's something that they're going to use uh, as a... Yeah, I could, see how, cry. I could see how it could fall down that trap. And... And I could see why in our org, why it would be safe to make that statement because uh, all of our devs consider writing tests part of writing code. But 
definitely you definitely have to have a culture in place where you can say an absolute. This is not, and to be clear, this is a, a statement I wanted to capture out of context to have this conversation. Okay, it's not a statement on like how unity does development and how 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 people are rewarded or anything like that. It was a statement I thought, oh, I think this now this is interesting. I want to bring this up in the context of what Brent and I were talking about accelerating the Brent and I. I'm, ta- I'm taking half credit now. <laughs> accelerating the <laughs> I'm taking all credit. Um, uh, accelerating the achievement of shippable quality. Right. So just I just want to be clear on that that it's not like this is the way Unity does stuff. I want to capture this statement because I thought it would kick off a discussion. No, it sounds like uh, you you were in a uh, offsite with leadership. This is what it sounded like to me. And uh, your executive is doing what he's should be doing, which is trying to understand and communicate the principles yeah. in which he was he was digging. He, he wants to come up with guiding principles. Sure. This is well. This is my vision, or my not vision, but vision uh, of the vision. My understanding of it. Inception vision. He's he's trying to create principles. Uh, you've already expressed that that uh, unity. Um, is vastly less of a command and control structure than here at Microsoft. <laughs> and, and the way you, you do that at an executive level is you, you create these rallying cry type principles that guide behavior and guide decision making at the lower levels. So many tangents in my head. Trying, <laughs> trying to control. Yeah, your face suddenly <laughs> just turned really red. Is, is oh, it? <laughs> so many, so many. So I'm going to start do a couple of them. All right. One is you mentioned that. I just have to say, I had no. I knew my previous manager at Microsoft was a bit of a micromanager. In reflection, oh my god, over the top, massive micromanager. It is uh, relative, isn't it? It is. <laughs> um, just this week, had some conversations around some personnel things, and I made some gut calls that you know, this is what I think. And I'm, I'm good about taking – one of the things I've really worked on being able to do is being able to make a decision, giving either a lot of data or a small amount of data. And then – but it's so weird to make that decision or, or offer the decision. Here's what I think I'm going to do or here's what I want to do. And not have it completely picked apart and second guessed, and it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. I trust your decision. Instead, it's weird. It's good. <laughs> but yeah, the other tangent <clears throat> uh, before you go on is you mentioned rallying cry, and yep. as I've mentioned many times, I'm a big fan of Pat Lencioni's business fables around leadership and and growth. And he probably the most famous one is the five dysfunctions of a team, but probably not even in the top five of his books. One of the things he mentions in one of the books, and I forget which one, is the need for a rallying cry. And a lot of companies will develop a rallying cry as a reaction to a crisis. And Brent and I will remember in 2000 when Microsoft was just full of viruses with Code Red and Slammer, how the whole company basically went offline for a, a while, a few months, month, to just study security and learn how to write secure software and build a security culture. We had a rallying cry around security. Yes, we and, did. And, and to this day now, Microsoft, I believe, is knows more about writing secure software than most companies in the world because it's really beat into the culture. 
But the challenge is, and what we're we're, we're potentially even overdoing it, perhaps. But like, what's I'll tell you, like every third action on my desktop right now. I have to take out my badge and oh, do two uh, FA. Yeah, the internal security is great. I don't miss that. I don't miss. I have a normal password on my phone. If I mistype the password, my phone doesn't get wiped. I, I told uh, some of my teammates, um, my boss and some and a, and a colleague, uh, about the fact that if I type my password wrong three times, my phone would get wiped out. And their jaws just dropped and they freaked out. They couldn't believe that could have ever actually happen anywhere. So that was a tangent on top of a tangent. So rewinding one tangent, uh, what's important for a company to do or an organization is have a rallying cry even when there isn't a crisis. Have have this, and this ties in a little bit maybe to in Lean Analytics, Yeah, yeah, yeah. the one true metric. What's the one thing we care about? Right, so a... a- and it can be context sensitive. I find uh, it, that it's helpful if you have, for example, a, a an executive that has different sorts of teams, right? Um, I, I think it's okay that he gives a, a a different sort of rallying cry or a sub rallying cry for that team, right? Um, he may be focused on reducing cycle time. Right? Yeah, and that's going to be something that's going to be really important for uh, the whole business unit. That may be his master rallying cry, but he may go the, to the engineering systems team and um, create a more actionable one. That's like, hey, I want fifteen minute builds. Yeah, right. Right. Let's put a pin in that because actually I have some uh, principles for my team at Unity, but I want to hit those a little bit later. Yep. I want to pop the stack a little bit and come back to. I want to set context on. The comment about all dev work should create value and say that was that's not a, a principle or a rallying cry of unity. That was a, a statement made to start another discussion, which I captured in order for us to have this discussion, which we are having now. And <laughs> we'll, this, is, <clears throat> I, this is the first time I think we've ever like <clears throat> decomposed our tangential route. Well, I, <laughs> I had to remember in order for me to remember what we were talking about. I had to pop the stack and remember how the hell we got there, which is really. You can just skip over it. There's this awesome thing we write up for the episodes every time. Just go straight to it. Yeah, Uh, you know what would be good. I wonder if you played a this podcast over with the sound muted. The movie Inception. If if our conversations would line up with the dream within a dream within a dream, I'm sure it does. It's be like when you play uh, Dark Side of the Moon with um, Wizard of Oz. And there's another one of those. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right then. So so anyway, um, you were talking about. So do you stuff. want me to? Well, where do you want to go? Do you want? I want to get to the ROI discussion. The the nuance I want to discuss was you talked about ROI. In the sense, you can. I'm going to paraphrase it while you're looking it up on your phone, and then you can talk about it. The point you got to that if the goal of test is to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality, then blah blah blah. The goal of test is to reduce I, reduce the investment, make it easier to achieve result. So what I said in this context, right? This was on the Slack channel, and one of the three dot slack dot com. 
several of the three were sort of chatting back and forth. Um, it started off with a question uh, around us mentioning that there should be an emphasis on only working on stuff that provably increases customer value. And then there was a question, what would you do when you get into a company where the code base is horrible without any automated tests and or where running a linter? Linter, a static analysis tool? Oh, okay. Or some other similar tool. I don't have my reading glasses on. I apologize. Uh, finds all kinds of bugs or potential bugs. Would you invest any time in improving the code base and or writing automated tests, or do you expect uh, a proof to the direct relation of this to customer value? How, et cetera. And then there was a bunch of discussion uh, amongst the three. While you're scrolling down, I'll say the first thing I do in a company like that is buy a bunch of copies of Michael Feathers working with legacy code. Fantastic ideas in that book for how to deal with that sort of mess. Yeah, and I would also bring in um, uh, Martin Fowler's Refactor. I find oh. that book is fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a pair. And then what the hell? Might as well bring in his uh, continuous uh, delivery book. I forget the name of it. Is it continuous deployment? I, Barton. Those, those Barton. first two. Those Barton first two are is uh, Martin and Fowler combined uh, in an unfortunate way. Uh, Martin Fowler is just a fantastic author for these type of things. All right. So my comment was... All features should be done to provably, provably create customer value, but they should be done in ROI order. And then I state, testing in this light serves one goal and one goal only, to reduce I. That, and that's what I wanted to discuss because... But when I was saying in this light, it was on the conversation of uh, fixing devs' crappy architecture. Yeah. So now that you've put that in context, the discussion is less relevant. So I looked at that and I thought, yeah. And uh, the first time I saw that statement, I thought, that's, a, that's actually a, gets to the crux of your initial statement. It's a reduction of accelerate the achievement of quality. Right. Then that made me think, inception, 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 it made me think that well, if the goal of test is to reduce I, then is the role of test merely a cost reduction role? I um, and and then I I have tried to abstract that out, and I, I don't think it is, and it it could be in a way, but I never want it to be counted that way. No, but if you so even my even my mantra that you've talked about here, like the that our role is to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality, right? I picked the word acceleration on purpose, right? Because it, uh, acceleration is the, the act of taking an existing speed and speeding it up, mm -hmm. right? So it's an auxiliary role. If you think of it from a from a uh, end to end business uh, type of thing, it is uh, it it implies that there is another element that is uh, a working to achieve shippable quality, and 
uh, test roles in this is to take that element, understand the processes of the missing tooling, mm-hmm. and speed it up. And um, now ROI can be framed in terms of costs like it normally is. Um, but uh, as, as you're aware, uh, normally nowadays when I think of these sorts of things, um, the biggest cost I'm concerned with is calendar time. Mm-hmm. Right? But, uh, my, I, I have mentioned this before, <laughs> but my number one concern is are we producing business value? My number two concern is how do we shrink calendar time? My number three concern is how do we shrink the number of engineering hours required? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, um, I think my very first blog on this topic um, was on what is the ROI of test. In, a, in another light, one that I think is more for might be more helpful or more lightning or more useful to the audience is, is around risk reduction. Um, but one of the things that I do see uh, tests like what was communicated on the, on the channel is we see a lot of tests saying, hey, this code base sucks, so we should create a bunch of automation to, to what? make it easier to determine when you screwed up the code base, is that not enablement to some degree? Right? It's, um, we sh- test, in my humble opinion, right, really wants to construct the practices that enables um, this acceleration on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Right, creating a multi-million dollar test suite upon a crappy code base doesn't really do that. That can be a little bit of the, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. If I'm yes. really good at automation, I'm going to do this. What I have, uh, I'm curious to your thoughts on this now, is when I elaborate on the context of your statement, which I've stolen as, as stated before, uh, I talk about... It's now public domain. I talk about my love and admiration of the theory of constraints quite a bit. Yes. In that, figure out not what sucks, but what's the biggest bottleneck to our process here? What, what's the biggest bottleneck? And not solve it completely, mitigate it until it's not the biggest bottleneck anymore, and then take on the next bottleneck. I will say, so I like that approach. I just don't like the word mitigate. So What would you use instead? I would say s- solve enough of it. I think it's isn't the same that what frame. it means? It <laughs> does. Now mitigate to me means, you know, hey the the building's on fire. We're gonna mitigate the pain by just removing everybody from the building. Let the building burn. I will look for a better word, but you get it. It's like yeah. the conversation I had uh, with someone just last week is like. Our devs really want some end-to-end tests as part of their uh, check-in suite, and we're going to help them get started on that. But I also have this um, – I also want to make sure we get this other multi-machine thing running for uh, – without going into details. Okay. And in order to prioritization, you know, this maybe even goes to ROI from the acceleration side. Right. Which one solves the bigger bottleneck? 
I said, well, the devs already have a bunch of check-in tests, but one thing we can't do is we have, we're totally blind over here. Okay, do that so we're not blind anymore. Maybe don't get all the way done, but get rid of blind spots. Go stare the crap out of me. Big ROI there. Yep. And then if the devs getting some more end-to-end tests as part of their suite is the next biggest bottleneck for our accelerating the achievement of shippable quality then do that. But otherwise, but, but reevaluate it every step. It's a constant reprioritization. Right. And to your point around um, uh, solve enough of it so that it's not the biggest mm-hmm. bottleneck, like um, one thing I might consider if I were in your shoes, like uh, so you, this, this end-to-end suite, right? Uh, so let's theorize, hey, there isn't, um, there isn't the test hooks necessary, right? So the, uh, from my experience, um, it sounds like an age-old ask of, hey, I want you to build me an end-to-end test suites for my check-in tests. And, um, and I might go, well, I have this huge major thing that we're completely blind to that, it, that is bothering me more. But what I will do is I will take one guy offline and make it make a library such that you can build that end-to-end yeah. test suite. And that's exactly it. it's what we do is we we bootstrap. It's it's yeah. really they have a bunch of unit level tests and they wanted to have some selenium tests running there as well. Right. And but they don't know how to write selenium tests very well. So basically they want to be bootstrapped. They don't want they don't want please write all of our tests for us. It's like please make it so we can write selenium tests that run and then and then we can jump in and do that. Yeah, and and uh, again, if if um, if that if uh, breaking down the workload into these smaller tasks, and you determine that the smaller task captures seventy percent of the ROI for the whole thing, uh, and it's cheap, do that first. Yeah. If it's not, then do what's next first. <laughs> so on the Slack channel, you mentioned. Uh, that there was some nuance. Have we covered this then? I think we have covered the nuance. I just wanted to talk about the eye a little bit and see if, the, but I think we're in large agreement, so it wasn't as exciting. Okay. But we did have yeah. some good tangents, and I'll figure out how to edit this <coughs> so it's less penis smacking. So the the one thing, though, they still do have a problem with, on a just from a dev-centric point of view, is the statement around all dev work should create customer value, right? And the other... We don't need to go into it, but the other thing that I do see as a problem with that is that's potentially a, a argument um, for the complete elimination of architectural improvements. No, and you could, and there's plenty of ways to blow holes in that statement. Yes. It's absolutely not true all the time. It's absolutely true some of the time. And let me tell you a case where it is. Uh, I believe in, I, in a culture of experimentation. Yep. Getting to a stage where everything you ship is an experiment and in order to determine the success of that experiment, you have to have some criteria for determining that. And that's and what you want to determine is what is the business or customer value of this experiment? And then find a way to measure that and determine very quickly if that experiment was a success. Or a failure. Am I, by a success or a failure, did it do? Did it improve business value as I thought, or it didn't? And when you're in an experimentation experimentation culture, you do this so often that you don't care that, that seven out of ten experiments fail. 
or eight out of 10, because you're doing it quickly enough and often enough that those two or three that do increase value uh, over time add up to massive improvements for customer happiness and love, et cetera. You, you, there's another reason why you don't care about them failing is because you've crafted the experiment and that every failure is still a win. It's a learning experience. Yes. Uh, but so that, that, that's an example of why if all I'm doing is ex experiments, then of course. But then of course everything provides value. But you're right. There's architectural improvements. There's building that safety net of a good unit test suite. All those things. You could say they uh, uh, supply indirect customer value. They make it so we can give you new features more quickly because our stuff can't break. But, but in the end – the statement falls apart under analysis, and that's okay, which is why I want to get the caveat early on. This is not a statement of how to make software, not a suggestion. It is a uh, often in debate or discussion, it's great to make a statement that's partially but not entirely true, and the learning comes from picking it apart. Yeah, the so like my favorite, these type of rallying cry type principles – uh, well, number one, I generally uh, despise absolutist statements, yeah. right? And I, even things like the Agile Manifesto, like you know very well I hate the thing. And it's, it's um, because it creates this sort of absolutism that is – When it's read wrong. Which it's read wrong I know, all of I the know, time. I know. It says uh, given this or this, we value both, we prefer this one more. Right. But people Therefore, don't Therefore, we should go all in on this one thing. People don't read it that way. And I saw a Rex Black tweet this morning. Um, I was going to reply. I thought, I'm not going to bother. But <laughs> he went off on uh, – basically, he he went off on is the process, the software, talking about all the love for Agile, Scrum, XP. And as you and I and the three know, those are a means to an end. They're a way of doing things that may help you – get customer value, get better customer value to customers sooner. But if you just follow the process blindly, I think it's going to make you make great software. You're stupid. Blind faith is always stupid. It is a system. Like this is something that just drives me batty. Producing software is a system. And no, if you follow, it, if you follow the process, it's, it, it just, you're perfect. You're golden. All you have to do is follow the process very carefully. What process? Except Who for, defined it? Except for the parts Who's you don't process? like. The process. Rex, Rex's process? No, it's, I'm, right? I'm, I'm, I'm the being process here My, because, right? because following process blindly in anything, in software, in school, in whatever, is dumb. Improving a system always relies on understanding the technology base that we have, the people that we're working with, and the processes that combine all three. And if you just focus on the process, you're going to screw up the hey, people. Hey, hey, three, guess what? Brent sounds like he's context-driven. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, again, it's redundant. Just because I used the C word. Um, all right. Anyway, shall, shall, we, shall we go on to the mailbag? I guess I'll back off the edge of the cliff here. <laughs> oh, it's All right. good to be back recording again. Yeah. You going to cue that up? Mailbag! Mm. 
All right. So one of our listeners posted a question. I'm going to read the whole thing. I will sit back in my chair and relax. All right. In the in the most recent episode, there it was, was a, an... It was a month ago. I'm sorry. Oh, wait. That's uh, not the right one anyway. <laughs> All right. Amit. In the last podcast, you stated... This is to Alan. In the last podcast, you stated that your mission, or part of it, is to create some sort of a unified testing culture across the organization. Question Correct. is... How to do such a thing. Where I work, we have a much simpler situation. Four teams in the same building, all part of some sort of scrum teams. And the difference is the difference in approach and skill set are painful. How would the first steps to creating a common culture would look like? Bonus, how to do that without being a manager. And bonus number two. How do you intend to do that in your organization where you have to gap multiple cultures and time zones? All right. Let's just take all those in no particular order at the same time intermingled. Okay. In this session, brand new session, we call Alan's Life at Unity. <laughs> oh, I'm totally snipping out that one. <laughs> We're reusing that little tone thing. <laughs> that was um, unlike mailbag. I don't think you could do totally, that one again. Totally improvised. <laughs> I'm not sure if um, that's going to make the cut or not, but we'll see what happens. It's good to be uh, in control of the editing sometimes. So, really, I'm going to answer that by telling you what, how I'm approaching that at Unity, and I've been there just about two months exactly now, if you can believe it. I can. So, uh, I think the first step in doing any sort of organizational change is. Take some time to learn what's going on. Um, figure out. Uh, there's there's noise in the background. It's freaking us out. Um, you need to get a good assessment of the current state. Fig when I think about organizational change, I think about current state and desired state, and then you can worry about the steps in between. But you need to be able to define where you are. So I did that. I uh, have now met in person most of my team and we'll have met all of them in person face to face uh probably by the end of may and that's helped out a lot i'm gonna do a interjection yep uh this is this is uh, a very simple insight that i see a lot of people when they're knee deep into it that they forget they either know where they are or where they want to be right um and and then they start taking action. They don't spend the time to figure out that other part of, uh, we'll call it the line. Like if, if uh, and I use, we'll use a metaphor. Like if you're in California and you like, oh, this sucks, I gotta keep moving. And um, you start driving and realize you need to go to Hawaii, right? It's not going to help you, right? You didn't properly plan out that you can't drive there, right? Uh, uh, another similar situation, uh, right? I, I use this metaphor. It's uh, so we're in Washington State, which is north of California, and there's many times where I observe that people are uh, driving to California by heading north. 
yeah, theoretically, you'll eventually get there. <laughs> um, but it's not the efficient route, right? Uh, so in that case, like, they know where they want to go, um, but they're not taking the direction that gets there. So understand not only where you want to be, but where you are now, and then build a plan to bridge. Sure, sure. And, and it I, sounds obvious, but I see people forget this all of the time. And the other thing is it's not – there isn't a teleportation chamber that takes you from Washington to California. Not yet. Not yet. So part of – and I'll, I'll go into this a little bit deeper. You want to understand where you are, where you're going. You want to take a baby step that direction. And then by the time you take a couple baby steps, your destination may change. We, I, we may start getting down the road. We're south. We're like get on our way to Portland. And we realized that, you know what? We actually need to go to Vegas. Sweet road trip. (laughs) (laughs) So things can change. So taking this from the abstract to the concrete a little bit, uh, I have a pretty good idea of where we are. And in learning where we are, there's – what I'm finding is parts of my organization are farther along that road towards where I want to go, which is a data-driven, data-centric culture for – for services, uh, parts of the org are actually partway down that road, and some are. Well, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> uh, I actually found one of our, our our teams. You'll be happy to hear this, Brent. They're talking about how they're approaching this one sort of testing. Said, and they said, "So what we do is we just." Uh, uh, I guess I don't need to give any context about this. So what we do is we just run a bunch of tests. And then we uh, detect errors by analyzing the log files, and which is what you talked about. Right. <laughs> I said, that's a good approach. Is it really? Say, yeah, that's actually a very good approach. <laughs> yeah. No, so, I, I love that approach. I, I, I thought you'd be happy about yeah. that. I said, yeah, we can do more of that. Uh, so anyway, I have an idea of I, who my allies are and make sure. Do they, do they, do they use their... Um, how do they analyze these log files, and are they using the same tooling on prod? Uh, it says one thing. I didn't want to go deep dive into context. The thing about you my can just role, say yes or no. Uh, <laughs> it's not applicable. NA. Okay. It's NA. All right. Because although I am the director for all of quality for all of Unity services, uh, I also air quote own wherever those services touch clients or editors. So basically anything that is connected to a back end, I own whether that code actually runs on a client device or a computer or in the cloud. So I do have some client testing as well. Like we have a fee. So, so you own the client, to service integration as well. Yes. So I own how the service connects to the editor, the unity editor, as well as how, uh, if the service, uh, like we have an SDK, for example, for doing ads on mobile devices. So I own how that SDK works on the mobile devices as well. Okay. Okay. So anyway, I've learned uh, where my allies are, which is important to do if you're going to make change. And also, it would be stupid of me, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, to go in there and go, I have ideas. Here's what we're doing. Let's go. Uh one of the things I've said to the team, both publicly and privately to people, is I have a direction where I think we should go, 
but I want to do it in a way that by all means does not screw up any of the good things already happening here. Uh, which I, I, I just think it would be stupid of me to take a company that full of smart people, full of people working in really good ways, and then tell them they're doing it wrong. Like you're doing it wrong. So I wanted to share, I sent some, just this week, I sent, uh, I did some bouncing. I have, my team structure, just so you know, is I have three leads reporting to me with various size teams, plus like nine ICs, nine individual contributors. So I have a combination of, of areas I'm directly in charge of, plus some leads take care of some areas and they're spread out throughout the world. Uh, so probably worth as I loop back into trying to answer this question in the next five minutes or so is <laughs> um, I have these people all over the world. And one thing I've told the team is that they all report to me or up through me, uh, but their work is almost entirely dictated by the feature teams they work on. They are, everyone is a member of a feature team, a scrum team. Um, many of them use Kanban instead of Scrum to make brand happy. <laughs> but they remember that feature team. They, I suggest, and most of them do already, have one-on-ones with that feature team lead in addition to me or, the, or their lead. Who has one-on-ones? Uh, the, the test folks, the QA folks. They don't already? No, I make sure they have one-on-ones with their feature lead oh, 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 oh. as well it, as it. me. I, I have one-on-ones with my Whoever whole Whoever serves as PO for- Right, because okay. that's, that's where their work comes from. They're going to get better feedback on their day-to-day work. So I tell them, I don't, I'm not in charge of a QA organization as much as I'm in charge of a QA community. Okay. And the value of community, and I, and I, I wrote that up, and then I said, well, am I thinking of community the right way? So QTech comes back, replanted to, to uh, Unity? Gosh- no. <laughs> yeah, it probably should. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I, I didn't type the definition up here, but community is a group of people who share common knowledge with each other, and, and, and I think it's a good way to describe it. And uh, for, for the listeners, QTech, because whenever I mention an acronym, I always get slammed on Slack channel. QTech was the name of a community that, Alan ran here at Microsoft. The Quality and Testing Experts Community. Yes. Uh, many years ago. Basically, I shared, like, here are here's how our community is going to run. I, I explained, like, I get out of your way and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I wanted to plant some seeds to get people used to things. Uh, number one, use data to understand how our features work in production and how customers use what we make. And in that, I explained that some teams are using monitoring in production as testing very well. I've started them off on Ed Key's talk as a uh, as a start there. Uh, I'll give them some more more things after Brent gives me a good list to share. Um, <laughs> okay. And that works on the service side, getting services side used to using monitoring as testing in production. They they know how that works. Uh, they're going to start thinking that way. And then for the client bits, using that customer data to understand, analyzing it, seeing how customers use the products. I believe that kind of moving in that direction without saying, I'm moving them from data oblivious to data aware. Yep. That's that's step one. That's, that's the mission right now. Number two. How has that resonated? Very, very well. Okay. I made sure it would first. I bounced things uh, before I – it's probably worth mentioning is – I would never just spout this out saying, okay, please follow this direction. I made sure it was going to work with the majority. You have to have the allies. You're going to go, this seemed right to you. Yeah, let me tell you why. Everybody gets it. They're all on board. 
Okay. But I just wanted to say it out publicly. And our Slack channels are are shared. Uh, they're they're all wide open. We have a few private ones for like you know some, some managerial stuff, but they're mostly wide open. In fact, in my um, I never use email anymore. I posted this to our public Slack channel, and what's great was a lot of the likes and comments came from devs and support people reading about how we're going to how I'm structuring QA. So that was good. Number two, discuss our hard problems and solutions with each other. So what I found in doing my my rounds around the world is like, oh, here's a really good thing you're doing. Here's a really good thing you're doing. Oh God, if you guys just shared this stuff and with each other, uh, both right beginning with the solutions, but also the hard problems. Like I have a hard problem figuring out how to do this. We're really challenged with this, and encouraging the community to collaborate, and just using something like Slack works much better than email for this, where you can find a way to have an open discussion around anything from conceptual to concrete, like technical solution. I want to bring up something because actually this, this hit me at my work this week. And I want, so on that one, I love it. Be proactive in stating that duplication of effort is okay. Doing so without collaboration is not. Yeah. Right? So the, the there's this one, in, and I've rallied against it in my entire time here at Microsoft, this one prevailing belief that duplication of effort is just naturally evil. And it is, is not because it's, again, very context sensitive. Yes. Right. So yeah. – and – They've already heard me early on in, in not like stating principles for the org, just talking about how I work, is that I really value learning and learning from mistakes and trying new things out. They get that. So this is a natural progression. I like that. Let's share what we're doing. It's important that we learn from each other. Right. So, and that's it. And then I wanted, I truly believe this, and I wanted to be a little aspirational, is um, earlier in the week or last week, I shared some of my favorite services tech blogs with them, like the Netflix tech blog, the Etsy engineering blog. Uh, there was a great article about engineering at, at Pinterest this week. I don't know if you saw or not. No. I, I shared those. And so they're kind of getting the idea, again, helping bring them from our team, them, the, our team, from data oblivious to data aware. Yeah, and it's also, you're, you're doing an element of sort of Greasing the wheels on on crowdsourcing to some degree. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like, no, look, we're, we're here to solve problems. I don't care to to create a culture of not invented here. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. And and the last one I put is I think a logical extension of that is of all that together is. Uh, Unity has a tech blog, and sometimes there are quality related posts on there, mostly to this. To, at this point, talking about how like we've handled some complex testing for the shaders and the graphic stuff, like you can imagine, like it would be in an Xbox blog. Good stuff on there. There was one just last week on how we do exploratory testing, which was very good. Uh, but I encourage them. Number three was share our best technical solutions publicly. Uh, I have aspirations of Unity Services blog being uh, Unity Tech blog having posts which are right up there in that group of my of that other people look at as their 
tech service blogs. Uh, if you look at, again, Netflix, Etsy, you know, maybe Pinterest, Unity. And they get that. I think there, there are some good solutions already, but to start thinking about uh, how important those are for not just to share with the public to show cool things we're doing, but to inspire customer confidence. I think uh, one of the reasons I, I'm amazed using Netflix is because I look at their blog and I know how much cool science and technology goes into how they do selection engines and, and uptime and streaming and things like Chaos Monkey and the whole simian army, as they call it. <laughs> Uh, I think there's some good stuff there, and I want to strive for our org to be there too. So, so, so winding back, hold yeah. on, because because the Amit's questions, uh, I think you nailed the how you're approaching this, but then um, I don't think you've covered what you might suggest if you were doing this and you weren't a manager, and and more specifics around how you're going to handle the the geopolitical time zone boundaries. Okay, the second one's easier because I actually think I have covered that. Have the discussions in the open. Transparency is key. And my org is all over the world. And it hasn't been a problem. People, uh, it's... So have the conversations like at your company. Yeah. You're saying, no, don't call me and have the conversation. Have the conversation with me on Slack channel right. as an example. Everything is just transparent in the open around the world. Everybody can participate. Like like I said, my team channel, on my team channels, I have, you know, there's QA services, QA component, QA. Uh, they're all public channels. And anybody can jump in and anybody is, is encouraged to jump in. And it works around the world. I think a tool you, like You heard Slack, it here first. Alan Page wants to kill the hallway conversation. The hallway conversation is Slack. <laughs> you, because, because of the world being flat and ha having organizations everywhere. If you have a geo-distributed company, Slack is your hallway. Channel, we have... A company of 1,400 people, we have 800 Slack channels. There you go. <laughs> you can join the just ones you care about. Just got 600 more to do. I just joined the Seattle Coffee Walk. So when someone wants to go get coffee, we, um, we have like a great coffee machine, but we'll walk over to Cafe Ladro for just to get outside in the gray sky. Cafe uh, Ladro we'll is good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> and the last question was, so not as a manager. Um, it's largely the same. There's probably two things I will add to this before we close up for the day. I'm going to change it. Yeah. Not as a manager in a command and control system. Oh, God. So I've done this before. So I've done this actually a very similar role in Xbox as an IC. Most of my IC time at Microsoft was spent sort of as the technical assistant to the director of test or test manager, person running the QA. Yeah, that's not I, a real IC, and you know it. it, it but it is. <laughs> but it's a leadership role. And the thing is, uh, individual contributor can be a leader. So what I, how I did this in Xbox, for example, largely command and control, although my manager, Chris, was very uh, a, definitely not a micromanager, which was awesome, uh, is I built a community. I, again, I... Just because you're not a manager doesn't mean you can't build a community. I could have sent this message to Slack as a senior IC and said, here's how I think we should be doing and just have my manager like it uh, as a, as a um, mode of support. But I don't believe, even in a command where I worked at Microsoft for most of my career in a command and control 
most of my career at Microsoft was in a command and control system as an individual contributor. That didn't stop me from attempting or trying or sometimes being successful at being a leader across an organization that's, that went even beyond my managers, often, almost always went beyond my manager's organization. Because I thought I did the work in a way that uh, was not uh, dictatorial, like like a dictator. Yep. But just in these same ways as I'm doing now, constantly spreading seeds and doing things at a like very slowly turning up the heat to get people moving in a direction. And like I said, realizing that the direction may change over time. So the one thing that I'll say, because um, I've gone through this sort of conversion repeatedly now, right? Um, the way I like to run my teams and the way I like to get them going when they're running smoothly means the team doesn't come and ask me for deci- uh, to make decisions all the freaking time. Yeah, because you don't... Number one... It, you, you avoid the command and control... As the, the, much as I that, can. That is around you. I mean, you almost had to do that in most teams at Microsoft. And I, I was told at Unity, if you do that too much, you get fired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like, if, if I were to solve this for Microsoft, I would just say, like, look, if you're a manager, you have to have at least 15 reports. Because you can't do micromanagement very well with that. And if that's your style, you'll get pruned out pretty quickly. Uh, right. But the other thing, but there's another aspect. Because I'll, I'll tell you, one of the really hard problems around, around this when it comes to individuals, right, command and control creates a safety net. It says... Um, I, the leader, the command and controller, are the is the one that's accountable for risk taking. Because there there is there is no leadership without risk taking. Correct. And um, really, what this comes down to, like what I do, is I, I I I boil frogs and I teach these individuals. First thing that has to happen is to teach these individuals what it means to influence and lead, right? Because a lot of times I get the questions like, well, how do I do this as an IC? And what they really want is a formulaic step-by-step plan that guarantees success. And you have to have built credibility as a leader. And maybe that's the answer. How how do you do this as an IC? You You lead. You learn to become a leader. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. I think this will inspire some more questions we'll get to next time. Yep. But uh, we should probably close for the day and... uh, Episode 56 in the bag. Or the can. All right. I'm not Brent. And I am. See you next time. Bye.